Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323 660 1175. Thanks for your support and enjoy. So, what I'm going to do is um, just talk for five to ten at the most about the book itself as a project and the word uncanny and why this thing is called Uncanny Reader. Uh, and then I'm going to hand it over to Amy and ask her to read the story of hers that is in the anthology. Gorgeous story. Many of you may know it, the Tiger Mending. Um, and then we're going to have a little conversation and then throw it open to questions. And we really hope that you will ask us questions, questions we can't answer, <laughs> questions we can throw back at you, whatever you want. So to begin with, um, I guess I would have to say that um, the, 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 the story, this essay, or sorry, this anthology itself, 31 stories, it's, I deliberately tried to make it international um, so that uh, I might get something of an education um, of, of writing that I hadn't heard very much about um, in, the, in the past. Um, we are used to reading American short stories, but there's a lot of incredible work going on in uh, various parts of the world. So there are stories in this collection from Zambia, uh, from Uruguay, from Scotland, from Sweden, from Japan... Uh, many places and uh, it really awakened me to a rich world of writing out there that was very important to me it made it harder to get rights reprint rights for some of these stories um, in all languages in English think about that but it was very exciting to get this range of writing into the book Uh, I also started with a very early story that is rarely anthologized called The Sandman by E.T.A. Hoffman how many of you know the name E.T.A. Hoffman? Oh, Sarah. <laughs> right. So you all have heard of the Nutcracker Suite? Yes. The original story that the Nutcracker Suite is based on comes from a very disturbing story by this guy. <laughs> Coppelia, the ballet, comes from the Sandman, which is the story in this collection. Trust me, it doesn't end with a wedding. <laughs> very upsetting story. <laughs> Um, Anyway, I wanted to start with that story because, as I'll come back to this in a moment, but uh, Freud, in 1919, wrote a big, long essay called Das Unheimlich, which he had translated as The Uncanny, and it has in it an extended analysis of the Sandman, which he thinks is a sort of perfect example of the uncanny in fiction. And he was actually jealous of fiction writers. He said, the uncanny that is in fiction is far beyond anything we might experience in daily life. It is all of that and something more. And you can really hear the wistfulness in his voice about that. So I wanted to begin with the Sandman uh, and really give it its place in literature and literary. I'm, and I'm sort of glad in a weird way that a lot of you didn't know about him because I'm hoping maybe it, the word will spread. With this great 18 17 writer, who is really the father of modern fiction, I'm convinced. 
From there, we move on to Edgar Allan Poe, Guy de Maupassant. There's a story by Chekhov in the collection to make the point that the uncanny is not necessarily about the supernatural, but more about the unfamiliar sort of hiding in the familiar. So you'll find Chekhov and a story about a a poor child uh, encountering an oyster for the first time and how disturbing that is. Uh, Anyway, we go on through time, and eventually we come to a great group of 16 contemporary writers, including Amy Bender, Kelly Link, Joyce Carol Oates, Stephen Milhauser, China Mieville, Steve Stern, whom you might not know, but is spectacular. Is it? Shall I lean back? A little feedback. Lean forward. Lean forward. Is that better? Oh, I still hear it. Well, maybe it'll go away. There we go. Better. All right. So anyway, you get the idea. This range of writers. And from other countries, um, a wonderful writer now based at Berkeley named Namwali Serpel, who was born and raised in Zambia till she was eight. Uh, and a very interesting, strange Swedish writer named Karen Tidbeck, who is really using the folklore of her native Sweden in a very interesting and folkloric and fairy tale disturbing way. Great stuff. So uh, quite a range there. So what I wanted to tell you a little bit about is why I came to do this. I come from a background of realist writing, I guess, but I was raised in Southern California uh, in a secular Jewish household, but I'm convinced now that we came with a whole bunch of sort of folklore in our blood and a sense of magic in literature that we never really lost. Um, Even though coming of age in graduate school in the 80s, it was all Carver. Great, I love Carver. Not a slam on Carver, but there wasn't much room for the magic and the fairy tale and the strange in in that particular moment. But I think I always carried it around as an interest. And when I think back to where this collection really begins, I think back to Arcadia and the San Gabriel Valley and a whole bunch of ghost stories that I was told as a child by a wonderful woman who lived in Alhambra named Francesca Rodriguez, who knew all about the Lucky Baldwin estate and all the strange ghosts. She had experiences of ghosts on that land. So I, I thought of the suburbs that I grew up in and that they're actually drenched in strange stories and history. And that, I think, was the basis of what I came to think of as the uncanny all these years later. This anthology really begins, though, about 10 years ago um, when I came back to The Turn of the Screw by Henry James after staying in a haunted 1,000-year-old house in England. It just made me want to read that book again. And I noticed the word uncanny in the book, and I thought, I don't really know what that means. And so I started... And I started noticing it everywhere on the web and everywhere, and I discovered that there was this huge, like, hundred years of theory and literature and hard thinking about something called the uncanny. The word itself is very old and very simple. It means, essentially, seemingly supernatural, and it goes back to 1600s Scotland. It first shows up in literature right around then. However, its parent word, canny, comes from ken, to know, and that word is a peculiar little word. It's probably from the Norse, and it not only meant safe and cozy and known and smart and careful, it also meant uh, possessed of supernatural knowledge. So you would go to a canny man to cast a spell on someone or get a spell removed to make trouble or to get rid of it. It was There was this hint of the supernatural around it. Freud, when he writes Das Unheimlich, 
investigates the word heimlich, right, which is homelike, and discovers that homelike also had words like private, hidden, secret, magic. So these parrot words are already unstable and starting to reveal that there's something in the familiar and the known that is not known at all, that is disturbing, perhaps, that that's where maybe the root of disturbance lives, is in the places uh, and things that we think we know best and trust the most. And that is the heart of the uncanny. The word reader in here is to push the attention off the writers and onto you as readers and to invite you to experience one or two or 15 or 20 of these stories as uncanny peculiarly to yourself in ways that maybe nobody else in the room would do. So I tried for a range. There's comedy, parody, satire, uh, really disturbing stuff about dolls, <laughs> um, <laughs> twins, um, and some of Freud's, I tried to sort of think of Freud's um, 12 or so uh, notions of what the uncanny, when the uncanny is an experience for us. Things like um, when you think you've met your double on the street, uh, or when you see the same number repeated more than twice in the same day. It's very much upset him. Um, or when something that should have remained hidden comes out into the open. That makes me think of Tiger Mending, in a way. Um, and another one I really love is when something primitive happens in a modern and secular context. Think about that. Mm. That's kind of cool. So that's kind of the bundle, if you will. Um, and I guess I would... This is the moment where I feel like telling you that one of the first writers um, that I wanted to have in this anthology when I first decided to take it from... I taught it as a course for many years. I decided to give it a shot as an anthology. I thought of Stephen Milhauser, I thought of Joyce Carol Oates, and I thought of Amy Bender. Uh, and I just, I just knew that she was right for this in ways that were going to be hard for me to define, and that made it even more right. The less definable, the better. But I think it has to do with some sense that a, a, a world quite beyond the characters and even you know, beyond all of us is somehow cracked open for moments in the language itself. It's not just that something magical or strange or supernatural seems to happen in, a, in, a, in an otherwise normal or familiar context. It's also that the language is vibrating and strange and doing something all on its own. And the very DNA of Amy's sentences is carrying that magic in it. So that's why I'm so thrilled that she agreed to be in the book and to come tonight. Well, thank you. What an incredible thing to say. Thank you. <laughs> and I have to say, I mean, her, her intro is incredible. Just hearing you talk about those uh, instability in the words, I just could listen to that for hours. It's so well stated. And the list of the kind of, Freud, the, in the Freud's essay, Marjorie lists, like she mentioned some of these ones, saying the number three times in a day. They're like perfect writing prompts. You know, like it just, all you need to do is crack up the anthology too to be like, I'll just do one of Freud's uncanny moments today. <laughs> Two pages. I mean, you know, or a novel, or, you know, like they're just ripe for writers. True. So, yeah. um, so I'm going to read the story Tiger Mending, which, um, and, uh, Diana, may I use your book? Thank you. I'm so pleased to be in this anthology, and I'm so pleased to be able to be under the umbrella of the uncanny because I just like the word, and I like the idea, and I like how it's hard to define, and I love these writers. So um, I'm thrilled. And what was neat, too, is 
Marjorie emailed me and we kind of talked about different ideas and we went through like five or six different stories and that was also kind of neat to see like, or I think maybe this one will fit what she wants. And she was like, I think maybe, maybe this other one is like a better match for this idea than can, and, which was an education for me too because I, you know, was learning about what's the, what's the quality that she's looking for for this particular book, which was, yeah, I like that. So, um, this story came, there was a magazine, I think it still exists, called Black Book, and they were pairing writers and artists, and you could pick your artist, or pick, I think the writers could pick the artists. They would give you maybe four or five choices per writer. I think there were about three or four writers, and they gave me a few, and one of them was this woman named Amy Cutler, who I just recommend um, Googling. She does such interesting work, particularly with women and work and magic. They're very odd paintings. Women have chairs sort of attached to their shoulders like antlers, and then they're like going at each other while sewing. I mean, it's just like really, and also kind of meticulously painted with very real um, hidden brush strokes. So, so there's this strange thing where you feel like it's a very realistically painted world and yet the image is completely bizarre and dreamlike so of course I felt like that was the one I wanted to pick and the, the, then I looked at all of hers and was like which one do I pick? Do I pick the little pigs under the bed? Do I pick the um, the, um, the, the skirt that becomes a kite? I mean they're just all fantastic but I had to pick the one of the tigers which I will I won't tell you the exact image, but it's kind of the climactic image of the story, so you probably know anyway. Tiger mending. And the idea was just write a story about it, so then I tried to figure out why this image had come to be. My sister got the job. She's the overachiever, and she went to med school for two years before she decided she wanted to become a gifted seamstress. What, they said on the day she left? A surgeon, they told her. You could be a tremendous surgeon. But she said she didn't like the late hours. She got too tired around midnight. She has small motor skills better than a machine. She'll fix your handkerchief so well you can't even see the stitches. Like she became one with the handkerchief. I once split my lip jumping from the tree and she sewed it up with ice and a needle she'd run through the fire. I barely even had a scar, just the thinnest white line. So, of course, when the two women came through the sewing school, they spotted her first. She was working on her final exam, a lime-colored ball gown with tiny diamonds sewn into the collar, and she was fully absorbed in it, constructing infinitesimal loops while they hovered with their severe hair and heady tree smell, like bamboo, my sister said, watching her work. My sister's so steady she didn't even flinch, but everyone else in class seized upon the distraction, staring at the two Amazonian women, both six feet tall and strikingly beautiful. When I met them later, I felt like I'd landed straight inside a magazine ad. At the time, I was working at Burger King as block manager. There were two on the block. And I took any distraction offered me and used it to the hilt. Once, a guy came in and ordered a Big Mac, and for two days, I told that story to every customer. And it's not a good story. There's so rarely any intrigue intrigue in this shabberdash world of burger warming. You take what you can get. But my sister was born with supernatural focus, and the two women watched her and her alone. Who can compete? My sister's won all the contests she's ever been in, not because she's such an outrageous competitor, but because she's so focused in this gentle way. Why not win? Sometimes it's all you need to run the fastest or to play the clearest piano or to ace the standardized test, pausing at each question until it has slid through your mind to exit as a penciled-in circle. In low, sweet voices, the women asked my sister if she'd like to see Asia. 
She finally looked up from her work. Is there a sewing job there? They nodded. She said she'd love to see Asia. She'd never left America. They said, well, it's a highly unusual job. May I bring my sister, she asked. She's never traveled either. The two women glanced at each other. What does your sister do? She's manager of the Burger Kings down on 4th. <laughs> Their disapproval was faint but palpable, especially in the upper lip. She would simply keep you company. What we are offering you is a position of tremendous privilege. Aren't you interested in hearing about it first? My sister nodded lightly. It sounds very interesting, she said, but I cannot travel without my sister. This is true. My sister, the one with that incredible focus, has a terrible fear of airplanes. Terrible. Incapacitating. The only way she can relax on a flight is if I am there because I'm always, always having some kind of crisis. And she focuses in and fixes me and forgets her own concerns. I become her ripped hemline. In general, I call her every night and we talk for an hour, which is 45 minutes of me and 15 minutes of her stirring her tea, which she steeps with the kind of Zen patience that would make Buddhists sit up in envy and then breathe through their envy and then move past their envy. (laughs) I'm really, really lucky she's my sister. Otherwise, no one like her would give someone like me the time of day. The two Amazonian women, lousy with confidence, with their ridiculous cheekbones in these long yellow print dresses, said okay. They observed my sister's hands, quiet in her lap. Do you get along with animals, they asked, and she said yes. She loved every animal. Do you have allergies to cats, they asked, and she said no. She was allergic only to pine nuts. The slightly taller one reached into her dress pocket, a pocket so well hidden inside the fabric it was like she was reaching into the ether of space. And from it, her hand returned with an airplane ticket. We are very happy to have found you, they said. The additional ticket will arrive tomorrow. My sister smiled. I know her. She was probably terrified to see that ticket, and also she really wanted to return to the diamond loops. She probably wasn't even that curious about the new job yet. She was and is stubbornly, mind-numbingly interested in the present moment. When we were kids, I used to come home and she'd be at the living room window. It was the best window in the apartment, looking out in the far distance on the tip of a mountain. For years, I tried to get her to play with me, but she was unplayable. She stared out that window, never moving for hours. By night, when she'd returned, I'd usually injured myself in some way or another, and I'd ask her about it while she tended to me. She said the reason she could pay acute attention now was because of the window. It empties me out, she said, which scared me. No, she said to my frightened face as she sat on the edge of my bed and ran a washcloth over my forehead. It's good, she said. It makes room for other things. Me? I asked with hope, and she nodded. You. We had no parents by that point. One had left, and the other died at the hands of a surgeon, which is the real reason my sister stopped medical school. That night, she called me up and told me to quit my job, which was what I'd been praying for for months, that somehow I'd get a magical phone call telling me to quit my job because I was going on an exciting vacation. (laughs) I threw down my BK apron packed and prepared as long an account of my life complaints as I could. On the plane, I asked my sister what we were doing, what her job was, but she refolded her tray table and said nothing. Asia, I said. What country? She stared out the porthole. It was the pilot who told us as we buckled our seatbelts. We were heading to Kuala Lumpur, straight into the heart of Malaysia. Wait, where's Malaysia again? I whispered, and my sister drew a map on the napkin beneath her ginger ale. During the flight, I drank Bloody Marys while my sister embroidered a doily. 
Even the other passengers seemed soothed by watching her work. I whispered all my problems into her ear, and she returned them back to me in slow sentences that did the work of a lullaby. My eyes grew heavy. During the descent, she gave the doily to the man across the aisle, worried about his ailing son, and the needlework was so elegant it made him feel better just holding it. That's the thing with handmade items. They still have the person's mark on them, and when you hold them, you feel less alone. This is why everyone who eats a Whopper leaves a little more depressed than they were when they came in. (laughs) At the airport curbside, a friendly driver picked us up and took us to a cheerful green hotel where we found a note on the bed telling my sister to be ready at 6 a.m. sharp. It didn't say I could come, but bright and early the next morning, scrubbed and fed, we faced the two Amazons in the lobby who looked scornfully at me and my unsteady hands. I sort of pick at my hair a lot and asked my sister why I was there. Can't she watch, she asked, and they said they weren't sure. She, they said, might be too anxious. I swear I won't touch anything, I said. This is a private operation, they said. My sister breathed. I work best when she's nearby, she said. Please. And like usual, it was the way she said it, in that gentle voice that had a back to it. They opened the car door. Thank you, my sister said. They blindfolded us for reasons of security and we drove for more than an hour down winding, screeching roads, parking finally in a place that smelled like garlic and fruit. In front of a stone mansion, two more women dressed in printed robes waved as we removed our blindfolds. These two were short, delicate, calm. They led us into the living room and we hadn't been there for ten minutes when we heard the moaning. A bad moaning sound. A real bad, real mournful moaning coming from the north outside that reminded me of the worst loneliness, the worst long lonely night. The Amazonian with the short short, shining cap of hair nodded. Those are the tigers, she said. What tigers, I said. Shh, she said. I will call her Sloane for no reason except that it's a good name for an intimidating person. Sloane said, shh, quiet now. She took my sister by the shoulders and led her to the wide window that looked out on the land, as if she knew instinctively how wise it was to place my sister at a window. Watch, Sloane whispered. I stood behind. The two women from the front walked into view and settled on the ground near some clumps of ferns. They waited. They were very still-minded like my sister. That stillness of mind, that ability I will never have to sit still. That ability to have the hands forget their hands. They closed their eyes and the moaning I'd heard before got louder and then then in the distance, I mean way off, the moaning grew even louder, almost unbearable to hear, and limping from the side lumbered two enormous tigers, wailing as if they were dying. As they got closer, you could see that their backs were split open, sort of peeled as if someone had torn them in two. The fur was matted and the stripes hung loose like packing tape ripped off their bodies. The women did not seem to move, but two glittering needles worked their way out of their knuckles, climbing up out of their hands, and one of the tigers stepped closer. I thought I'd lose it. He was easily four times the first woman's side, and she was small, a tiger's snack. But he limped over in his giantness and fell into her lap, let his heavy striped head sink to the ground. She smoothed the stripe back over, and the moment she pierced his fur with the needle, those big cat eyes dripped over with tears. It was very powerful. It brought me to tears, too. Those expert hands as steady as if he were a pair of pants, while the tiger's enormous head hung to the ground. My sister didn't move, but I cried and cried, seeing the giant broken animal resting in the lap of the small, precise woman. 
It is so often surprising who rescues you at your lowest moment. When our mother died in surgery, the jerk at the liquor store suddenly became the nicest man alive and gave us free cranberry juice for a year. What happened to them, I asked Sloan. Why are they like that? She lifted her chin slightly. We do not know, but they emerge from the forests, peeling, more and more of them, always torn at the central stripe. Do they ever eat people? Not so far, she said, but they do not respond well to fidgeting, she said, watching me clear out my thumbnail with my other thumbnail. Well, I'm not doing it. You have not been asked. They're so sad, said my sister. Well, wouldn't you be, said Sloane, if you were a tiger unpeeling? She put a hand on my sister's shoulder. When the mending was done, all four women and beasts sat in the sun for at least half an hour, tigers' chests heaving, women's hands clutched in their fur. The day grew warm. In the distance, the moaning began again, and two more tigers limped up while the first two stretched out and slept. The women sewed the next two and the next. One had a bloody rip across its white belly. After a few hours of work, the women put their needles away. The tigers raised themselves up and without any lick or acknowledgement walked off deep into that place where tigers live. The women returned to the house. Inside, they smelled so deeply and earthly of cat that they were almost unrecognizable. They also seemed lighter, nearly giddy. It was lunchtime. They joined us at the table where Sloane served an amazing soup of curry and prawns. It is an honor, said Sloane, to mend the tigers. I see, said my sister. You will need very little training since your skill level is already so high. But my sister seemed frightened in a way I hadn't seen before. She didn't eat much of her soup, and she returned her eyes to the window, to the, tangle, to the tangles of fluttering leaves. I would have to go find out, she said finally, when the chef entered with a tray of mango tartlets. Find out what? Why they unpeel, she said. She hung her head as if she was ashamed of her interest. You are a mender, Sloane said gently, not a zoologist. I support my sister's interest in the source, I said. Sloane flinched every time I opened my mouth. The source, my sister echoed. The world has changed, said Sloane, passing a mango tartlet to me reluctantly, which I ate pronto. It was unlike my sister to need the cause. She was fine usually with just how things were. But she whispered to me as we roamed outside looking for clues of which we found none. She whispered that she felt something dangerous in the unpeeling and she felt she would have to know about it in order to sew a tiger suitably. I'm not worried about the sewing, she said. I'm worried about the gesture I place inside the thread. I nodded. I'm a good fighter, is all. I don't care about thread gestures, but I'm willing to throw a punch at some tiger asshole, if need be. <laughs> we spent the rest of the day outside, but there were no tigers to be seen. Where they lived was somewhere far, far off, and the journey they took to arrive here must have been the worst time of their lives, ripped open like that, suddenly prey to vultures or other predators when they were usually the ones to instill fear. We slept that night at the mansion in feather beds so soft I found them impossible to sleep in. Come morning, Sloan had my sister join the two women outside, and I cried again, watching the big tiger head at her feet while she sewed with her usual stillness. The three together were unusually productive, and sewn tigers piled up around them. But instead of that giddiness that showed up in the other women, my sister grew heavier that afternoon, and she said she was sure she was doing something wrong. Oh, no, said Sloane, serving us tea. You were remarkable. I'm missing something, said my sister. I am missing something important.
Sloan retired for a nap, but I snuck out. I had been warned, but really, they were treating me like shit anyway. <laughs> I walked a long distance, but I'm a sturdy walker, and I trusted where my feet went, and I did not like the sight of my sister staring into her teacup. I did not like the feeling it gave me of worrying. Before I left, I sat her in front of the window and told her to empty herself, and her eyes were grateful in a way I was used to feeling in my own face, but was not accustomed to seeing in hers. I walked for hours and the wet air clung to my shirt and hair. I took a nap inside some ferns. The sun was setting and I would have walked all night, but when I reached a cluster of trees, something felt different. There was no wailing yet, but I could feel the stirring before the wailing, which is almost worse. I swear I could hear the dread. I climbed up a tree and waited. I don't know what I expected. People, I guess. People with knives cutting in. I did not expect to see the tigers themselves, jumpy, agitated, yawning their mouths beyond wide, the wildness in their eyes, and finally the yawning so large and insistent that they split their own back in two. They all did it, one after the other, as if they wanted to pull the fur off their backs, and then, amazed at what they'd done, the wailing began. One by one, they left the trees and began their slow journey to be mended. It left me with the oddest, most unsettled feeling. I walked back when it was night under a half moon and found my sister still at the window. They do it to themselves, I whispered to her, and she took my hand. Her face lightened. Thank you, she said. She tried to hug me, but I pulled away. No, I said. And in the morning, I left for the airport. So great. Thank you so much, Amy. So I, I warned Amy I might ask her a question or two before we open it up. Um, and this might be a hard one to answer. Writer is never supposed to answer these kinds of questions. But I want to give it a try. If you think about it, is there something for you in that story that, by your own definition of the uncanny, that feels to you like it, it vibrates to that question? About the uncanny? Yeah. Or what feels uncanniest to you in that in your own? Story? I mean, I guess so. The the image from the painting is the image of the women with the knitting needles sitting with the peeling tigers. So she gave me such an incredible image to work with, and I think some of it was about trying to build an atmosphere where that would make some sense. But I I do feel it was collaborative in the way that that image. I think that image has an uncanniness to it and because to see a tiger vulnerable is somehow so unsettling. And so to flip, thinking of the, the thing in the, um, the Freud, the primitive inside the contemporary, right? Something about our basic sense of the food chain um, being played with a little bit. I guess we're top of the food chain, but we're also, you know, you're not if you're stuck with a tiger and you don't have anything on you. You know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and there's something um, you're a woman with yeah. a knitting needle you know you're usually it's not going to work for you yeah. I was thinking too there's a line in, in it uh, that just goes sort of fleeting by it it's Sloan says the world has changed mm. and that line just slips past mm. in this quiet way um, but it seems to sort of ripple out through the story mm. it's not an answer mm. right I mean, there's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a it just sort of floats out as, a, as another um, 
was a sort of question about the tigers. Yeah, sort right. Of, so that, I remember that sort of functioning weirdly as a sort of pre-unsettling to the narrator's own remark. Yeah. about unsettling. Yeah, that That's makes great. sense. Something in the something is off. The world has changed in some way that that unsettles all of us. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's another there's another um, aspect of the uncanny that Freud I don't think really talked about, but a lot of scholars have that also is happening in this story that mm. I, I I don't know, but this is a very interesting thing to me, but a lot of scholars have thought about that the uncanny happens in the margins and in the neglected areas. So we're all looking to the central story or we're looking, you know, at the main subject and something's happening in the peripheral vision mm. um, that we're we're dimly aware of, um, and that's where the the actual pull is happening. Mm. Uh, something strange is beginning to, I would say, unravel. Mm. Um, and mm. and the story, because the character herself, right, is she's she's not the, the center of attention. Yeah, yeah that yeah. she's sort of the perfect quester. Mm. After such things, I'm glad. <laughs> yeah. let me um, ask you another one. Sure. Um, I was thinking, you know, when I first started talking, I said something about childhood and ghost stories. Mm. Um, and one of the things I discovered when I did this anthology was there's a very obscure writer in this anthology from the early 20th century named Marjorie Bowen, not the famous Elizabeth Bowen, but Marjorie Bowen. She wrote under five male pseudonyms. Wow. Uh, at least. Uh, turns out that she was Graham Greene's favorite writer. Uh, he read uh, The Viper of Milan, historical novel of hers, when he was a teenager, and it, it, it was the reason he became a writer. And he goes back to that story. So I wanted to ask you the same question. Is there something from childhood, either told stories or written stories, that you go back to as a kind of a touchstone or a place from which you come? I mean... Because I think the writers that I admire um, very much in the anthology, and probably Kafka being the one that I could look to as the most, even though I don't know the story that's in here and have to read it, but as the most formative. But, um, I mean, it, it's... I do think, thinking of childhood, it does go back to me to fairy tales because there is often that that darkness. And I think I was thinking, driving over, about the horror and the uncanny because they're they're certainly linked, but horror is such a broad, much less subtle term that we think of like bloody guts, you know, and only... I think actually Stephen King is quite a wonderful writer in many ways, but somehow doesn't fit often. You know, it's usually a little more... Um, it just his movements don't move in the same way. So, but I think there's sometimes something in a, a fairy tale um, movement that has a strangeness or an image um, that resonates. And I guess it's this is kind of a side story, but it has a point to it, which is that I teach this fairy tale class, and we, we're talking once about the twelve dancing princesses. And and those of you that know that story, it ends kind of oddly, where it's like one of the princesses marries the soldier, and they're lovely ever after. And really, the core of the story is that these girls, these young women, go down underground and dance till their shoes are tatters. And one of my students, because uh, the other students were like, "Why does the oldest get married to this guy who traps them?" And blah, blah, blah. and it was a very good question, like, "Why is this ending, this marriage, or this?" this kind of um, tacked-on known ending. And the student said this very wise comment that I've always remembered, which is, it's just a way to frame the image. Because the image you want to know is the, the women going down underground and dancing till their shoes are tatters. That's the image. All you want to do is get there. And I feel like that's sort of what you're saying in all these stories. There's usually an image that somehow resonates with uh, a dreamscape internally and often with anxiety. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. it's often like, how do we process 
anxiety of being a human being. Right, and that's and that's one of the weird things about the uncanny too is that it's such an old word, and it's such a an, it's an old feeling, yeah. but it's taken on a whole new meaning in the twentieth and twenty first centuries. Our anxieties are harder to place. So the story of the Sandman mm. has a bo- a boogeyman in it, right? A, a, a scary, scary figure. Really contemporary stories of the uncanny. You you sort of have a hard time finding the boogeyman. You're 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 reaching into every closet and cupboard and alleyway to find the the source of the problem. But you're sort of left holding sand. And mm-hmm. I didn't really mean to say that. <laughs> I hate that accidental punning. That should be in the list, right? Accidental punning. Uh, right. But it is, it is this idea, is this idea that uh, we don't know where it is anymore. So um, I think it's really important that, that we explore the sensation mm-hmm. in all of its contemporary um, ways. Uh, and, the sensation. And, yeah, yeah, the sensation. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 That's great. And, and I was thinking, too, when you were talking about fairy tales, you know, they don't explain stuff, right? Fairy tales, they just flatly tell you, but it's not flat. It just puts you down this frightening hole. A friend of mine, a friend, former student who's now a good friend, once described the uncanny as a rabbit hole with no wonderland at the bottom. It struck me as a really great, thank you, Freud. You know, she should have told him that it's a really great, um, it's a great way of thinking about, but fairy tales really do that. They don't. They don't solve anything, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's no internal explanation or attempt to kind of, yeah. Paper over. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. cool. Well, you sort of, when we, when you mentioned Kafka, I thought you were going to blow my other question, which was, was there a writer in this anthology that you count among your great influences? And if there's something about Kafka you could that you can articulate, I mean, it's so it. hard to talk about. <laughs> that guy. Yeah, Kafka. Though I think Poe, I mean, I remember reading Poe in junior high or something and feeling like just the very difference of Poe. You know, at that point, you're just coming upon what is literature. And I think there's this feeling of like, literature looks like this and it doesn't look like Poe. It looks like um, realism. And so then I think there was a permission in reading something like The Telltale Heart and finding it frightening and and vivid and even maybe having a little trouble reading it like not quite being able to tolerate it especially at that age when everything is terrifying and you know like it's Poe kind of hits the reading curriculum at a time when everything is (laughs) completely scary anyway but it's also a time that that kids are really drawn to something that makes you feel so unsettled that sensation so I think Poe felt important to me Um, and I also feel like a lot of authors I didn't know about um, but Kafka was one that I did know about and I think um, I mean I think the amazing thing about Kafka is uh, the the level of realness he brings to the details of the strangeness in the world he describes is phenomenal I mean when you that's like I'll have you know you I'll reread something to teach it or and I'll just think oh wow I really think he was a bug like I really think he I think maybe he was a bug and came back to write about it like it's so lived you know I really think he's all you know I think this trial happened I think all these various things feel completely inhabited uh, in a way that when you talk about the language kind of holding something that you're the kind of bottom of your heart falls out a little bit that's great that's great yeah, love it. There's a there's another uh, there's an 
an, a Russian word that's very nice that translates very badly into English. But a Russian word. Is there any Russian? Is there a Russian in the room? Russian speak. <laughs> Russian speaker. I'm safe. Okay. Uh, Ostranani means. Uh, the strange in the familiar, uh, that, that to defamiliarize, that's the terrible English word I was trying to avoid saying, <laughs> to defamiliarize what we know. Um, but what's thrilling about it, there was a guy in, right around the time of Freud, um, named Viktor Shklovsky, who wrote a wonderful essay called Art as Technique. And in it, he said uh, that habitualiz- habitualization, right, or, or this sort of way we live now, I, we, we are on automatic pilot a lot of the time, that habitualization destroys uh, one's, one's family, one, he said something about uh, one's fear of war, uh, mm. and that art exists to make the stone stony, um, to bring us back. Uh, to the present, to the moment. And I love that, make the stone stony. It seems like a revolution could be started on, uh, just on that phrase. Uh, but he really, he really believed that, um, that art should be difficult, uh, that you should have to struggle through a sentence in order to fully experience it. And in a way, Kafka does that. You, you feel like you're going down this tunnel with him and you, you have to look at everything, right? Nothing is given to you in, in familiar code. Right. So I think then, and that's something that you're doing in that story too. I think that's happening in every gram of that story. Mm. I'm so glad. Those are my questions. Do you, <laughs> do you want to, should we throw it open? Sure, sure. Yeah? Yeah. I can. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Barely, yes. But we'll repeat your question. Well, you shouldn't read these late at night. It's a great question. It's a really great question. So what what happens? The first part was what is the uncanny in as an experience in literature as opposed to in film or some other medium? And the other question was uh, what happens when you close the book? Right? Um, that's wonderful. Taking gander at one of them and maybe you can too. Do yeah. you have a yeah? Yeah. Um, the one thing that's coming to me specifically is is the close the book question, mm-hmm. um, which is really a wonderful one. And and actually one of the tests for me of the stories as I read and collected um, was to be uh, unable to solve something when I when I closed the when I closed the story when I finished reading the story to feel as if something had been left dangling, as if something was vaguely wrong. Mm. Um, and sometimes, I mean, that actually, there's a kind of, in a great uncanny story, there's actually something wrong with it, even in the bones of the language, um, so that you can't fix it and resolve it. Uh, and that seemed like an essential quality. The trick to that, however, is that different people are going to feel lack of resolution in different places. Um, so one of the challenges was uh, that there's a satire, a political satire, uh, Actually, it's an academic satire, which is political to me. <laughs> in this, in this, and uh, I think some people will find it just sort of funny and not particularly, possibly supernatural. Like you know, it just sort of. But for me, I, I actually found it difficult to teach the next day <laughs> because this professor has gone off his rocker, and we can't tell exactly what spun him off. And none of the other people in the story seem to know that anything's wrong with them. So that may have been part of the irresolution 
uh, you know, only one person sort of took the heat for something that is out there. So um, maybe that's it, that sort of feeling. And, you, and I think it's important as a reader to work a little, to, to ask yourself, what is it that is still bugging me now that the story is over? What am I mm. still keyed on it? Because it will expose you to your own secret obsessions, mm. which is dangerous, but good. Good. Yeah. Do you want to try? Oh, that's yeah. such a great answer. Um, I mean, I think the, the film question is, is interesting and, and other media... I guess what comes to mind first is that there's something more overwhelming in a certain way in a film because everything is visually laid out for you and you are sitting there in your home or a theater or whatever. And because of that, uh, also less, not overwhelming, but less um, uh, personal or something. You know, that I think because of the abstraction of language, when you find yourself in that eerie, uncanny place in a reading experience you are very much inside your own mind. And I think that ex- ties to exactly what Marjorie was saying, that you sort of end up with your own, a mirror to your own obsessions and fears, which is uncomfortable <laughs> and scary and maybe why they should be best read in a cafe in daylight, you know, around other people. And I'm actually not kidding. But that I think in a film, you know the group is there and you know the lights are coming up and you, your, your mind is participating, but it is different. I think it, in some ways, it's you know, it washes over you more fully in the moment, but it's easier to let go of sometimes. Mm. Yeah. So, um, you know, the creepiness when language kind of enters you and you can't get it out. It's very, yeah. it's very unsettling. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Um, so I think we're kind of living in a time period where we're doing sort of a lot of research and sort of scientific inquiry. And so I was wondering how um, the idea of the uncanny fits into that and can sort of um, jolt us out of what we normally do in a process. Ooh, that's a great question too. Amy, do you want to? Sure. And it was uh, just remembering about we're supposed to repeat questions. So about science and scientific inquiry and how do we balance that against this exploration of the uncanny? Um, I mean, it's just always there. I think no matter how much gets explained, I, I guess you know the sensation. What Marjorie said a little bit, the sensation or this feeling of anxiety or the moments. Uh, if I think of my own life and moments of anxiety where I really felt that, like, just the mind can be so tricky and confusing if you feel for whatever reason a little um, a little frightened and scared.